As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we're asking, what's up with Erling Haaland? We're asking, how Pulisic is gelling with that gang at Milan? And we're picking out our favourite punditry cliches. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, he's no cliche, he's Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello, my friend. I do love that so many of these questions, you started off with, what's the deal with Erling Haaland? It could be like, what's the deal with Erling Haaland? What's the deal with Pulisic? What's the deal with the championship? We could really run through a lot of them pretty quickly in that way rebrand what's the deal is that what his show's called now (laughs) yes seinfeld wants his cut but yes that works (laughs) indeed telling us what the deal is with things also today good grammar graham rutherland hello hello ryan bailey you still enjoying the international break i noticed that you're packing in all your errands during this week you've uh, had your driving test you've done Mm. your monthly visit to vegas how's it going You'll be delighted. My, my, yeah, my bi-monthly visit to Vegas. Thank you very much, Graham. And uh, your bi-monthly driver's test as well. <laughs> oh, you're bad. Oh, brutal. <laughs> I passed this one, just so you know. Hey, congratulations. Thank you very much. You're 18 I'm a, again. <laughs> I'm 18 again. Oh, my God. I'm going to go lie down. Joe Lowry, hello. <laughs> hello. Wow. Graham, that was excellent. Um, wow. That's, that's the first thing I have to say. Second thing. Shocked Ryan has not yet done the Seinfeld impression. I really felt like we were building towards it. Um, Didn't happen. Honestly, I'm okay with that. Third thing, Ryan, you said good grammar, and I thought you were introducing Graham as good grammar, like we'd come up with a new nickname for Graham. And now we have come up with a new nickname for Graham. He's the good grammar, folks. He's the good grammar. (laughs) He is indeed. Plenty more of him, of Taylor, of Joe, and myself, by the way, on our Patreon. If you choose to support us that way, please do so at patreon.com slash totalsoccershow. A lot of fun going on there. Uh, not including footage from my driving test, which I passed. I'll just say once more, thank you very much. Were you recording while you were driving the first time? Was that the... <laughs> yeah, he, he said like both hands on the wheel and not doing the selfie thing. I don't know. Maybe that was the issue. Maybe that was it. Well, time only time will tell. Yeah, uh, we shall see. Anyway, plenty of listener questions to get to, none pertaining to my driving status. But this one from Richard Rolson has come in. 
Do you think Erling Haaland looks a bit checked out in the Manchester City lineup? I haven't been impressed with his overall game so far this season. Do you see him staying on a Pep team for long? Joe, eight goals in eight games, you know, 36 and 35 last season. That seems relatively consistent stat-wise, but a little bit of a different product with perhaps Julian Alvarez more in the mix. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part of Manchester City right now is this evolution we're seeing from Pep Guardiola where it feels like he's got the big lads up front and the big lads in the back and not a lot of people in the middle, which is a very strange progression in Pep Guardiola's tactical ideology. But yeah, before I go any deeper into that, I'll be honest, Richard, I haven't really noticed this. I'm not necessarily denying it, but I haven't seen a lot of Erling Haaland looking checked out. But first, I kind of want to point out how crazy high Holland has set the bar for himself because he is actually underperforming ever so slightly. And Ryan, you kind of did the quick uh, math there with, what was it, 36 goals and 30? No, that's not right. Whatever whatever the numbers you said, that got the job done. So he scored more than a goal per 90 minutes in the Premier League last year. uh, And he's not quite at that same level this year. He had 1.17 goals per 90 last year. And I think is just over one goal per 90 this year in the Premier League. So Slacking. yeah, he is Rubbish. slacking. Like, you can go through and see an FB ref, and I think this is actually his slowest season in maybe the last three or four years. But, I mean, come on. His scoring output is still unmatched in the Premier League, certainly. I do think maybe the biggest change we're seeing with Man City that is impacting Erling Holland, if not necessarily in the box score, is that tactically Pep has changed. Like, I, I, I talked a bit about it. More center backs. Like, he's playing four five if you count Rodri, but but usually four center backs at a time or often four center backs at a time. Without Kevin De Bruyne, there are fewer connectors and sort of obvious final third playmakers. And De Bruyne will come back into this team and that may rejuvenate Holland a little bit more than he already is. And then you have Julian Alvarez playing more. And so the, the structure of this team has changed. How they go about doing things has changed. Arsenal has done the same thing. Michael Cox had a really good piece for The Athletic about that matchup and sort of what it says about the direction that these, not maybe not every ball dominant team, but at least these two in the Premier League are going with Mikel Arteta as Pep's former assistant and now leading the the next biggest title challenger in the Premier League. Things have changed tactically. We're seeing teams kind of turn the page, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's having some impact on Erling Holland, but I don't know that it's really having a big one. Yeah, Taylor and I spoke about this on on Monday's weekend review. We spoke about the the progression that Arteta and Guardiola, as possession heavy um, managers, managers who favour that that style of play and that approach, the progression that is happening in their two teams this season is really really interesting. And I agree broadly, Joe, with what what you're saying about how how City are approaching games now under Guardiola and how they've got the big men at the back and the big men at the front. Where I find that difficult to square is with my opinion of how or why Haaland isn't maybe been hasn't been as sparkling this season because I think in the second half of last season City really seemed to tune into how they could use Haaland in transition and not just a finisher in transition and one of the most memorable goals of last season for me was the one Kevin De Bruyne scored against Arsenal at the Emirates where Haaland holds up the ball and then feeds De Bruyne into space on the break and and they have so much space to break into in transition or even in, in just straight counter-attack and that was something a little bit different. It said to me they were they were unlocking Haaland in a different way to make them a different team. Um, Haaland's never going to be a Harry Kane-style pass master, but I think that showed Guardiola was thinking of other ways to use him in, in, in the build-up. This season, 
While I agree with what you're saying, Joe, about City being kind of hollowed out in the middle, I also think I haven't seen the same verticality from them. And that's maybe down to Julian Alvarez being in that De Bruyne role and De Bruyne maybe being a little bit more willing to break in behind um, and having that space to burst into. And it's it, the, the start of this season, even though Haaland has kept his scoring rate up, and what is it you said, Ryan, eight, eight and eight games yep. in the Premier League? That's not bad at all. Um, it kind of feels like the first half of last season where there were ways to isolate Haaland and basically deny him the ball, as William Saliba did for Arsenal on Sunday, where I think Haaland has single-digit touches of the ball and, and against Arsenal has like 0.00 expected goals in that game. It does kind of feel like we've gone back to the start of last season where teams are able to do that. Stopping City, of course, is, an, is another matter altogether because they've got players like Doku and, and Alvarez who have stepped up. But yeah, I do agree with Richard's premise that Haaland, even though his goal-scoring rate is high still, he hasn't quite been the same player that we saw in the second half of last season. Taylor, your thoughts on Richard's premise? Yeah, I think Joe and Graham have, have run it through pretty well. The only things I would note, uh, the Rodri suspension, I think probably doesn't help with the lack of numbers and consistency through the middle, nor has the departure of Ilkay Gundogan. And so I think we see a team that's figuring out a slightly new identity uh, while also having a target on their backs, obviously. So I think we've seen Holland not look quite as explosive, but I also think last year at least after the, the Community Shield game, which is maybe silly in retrospect, there was that concern about like, oh, maybe Nunez is going to be the breakout striker and maybe Holland is going to take a while to gel. And then he hits the ground running and has a ton of success. But still, we see City go through different uh, permutations and different approaches, and then they kind of settle on that identity. And this is the same thing that Graham and I talked about to his reference on Weekend Review. Let's just wait for them to click into gear in the second half of the season and not lose another game with Holland scoring like two goals a game. And then I think we'll be maybe less concerned about him overall. But I do think there are extenuating circumstances as to why he might not be as effective or efficient as we've seen in at least last season and, and in seasons past for Dortmund. That's completely fair. Uh, Graham, I suppose we want him a bit checked out for this international break if we're of a certain nationality as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, specifically Sunday. I would quite like him uh, checked out for, for that game. He's he's the only player to have scored against Scotland in our Euro qualification campaign, so maybe maybe he's used up his goals for Norway and he won't score against Spain on, on, on Sunday. Um, just to talk about the second part of Richard's question, wh- what do we think about that? Do we think he's going to be at City for a long time. I, I kind of think he's going to do the Cristiano Ronaldo thing and, and dot around Europe, mainly because his dad keeps on saying that's what he's going to do. And his dad <laughs> has a, a big influence in, in his career. So I can very much see, you know, three years from now, maybe when Pep leaves City, Haaland going to Real Madrid or, or something like that. I think that's on the cards. Do, do either of you or any of you all feel like you have a good read on his personality or his disposition? I'm robot. not sure that I do. Funny robot. robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I can't tell if he's a guy who wants like a ton of instruction and really enjoys probably the level of attention to detail and the demands of Pep Guardiola or if he's a guy who's okay with that but then also would enjoy an Ancelotti Real Madrid approach of like just kind of let the players play let them score goals let them have some fun and and if he is the second which I suspect he might sort of be I, I could see him getting burnt out a little bit or just losing some of that efficiency but still having such a high valuation that uh, it would help Man City, certainly for FFP purchases or purposes, not that they're so worried about money. Uh, but also, I think that, yeah, maybe he makes that move to Madrid uh, and then has a few seasons there. And then it's another move to Graham's point uh, with a little bit of bouncing around if it is him wanting 
I think, to have fewer demands and have a little more freedom. And then maybe also just kind of be seen as the guy. Like, he is the goal scorer for Manchester City uh, until Julian Alvarez eventually surpasses him. But is it his team? Is it De Bruyne's team? Last season was it Gundogan's team? Is it Pep's team? I think there's there's different ways to look at it. And if he wants to be the guy, I feel like Real Madrid is always the place where people end up going when they want that level of uh Esteem. Well, yeah, before Ryan could say it, he's got to knock over Jude Bellingham first if that's going to happen and there also like crush Kylian Mbappe's dreams along the way. I, I don't <laughs> I don't know the answer to the second half. I would imagine he's going to stay with Man City for several more seasons. I don't know if Pep's going to be there for several more seasons, but it feels like a, a pretty natural fit. The best league in the world, which the Premier League is right now. I don't think there's any real argument about that and the best team in the league as the best number nine in the world. It all seems to fit yeah. quite well. I'd be curious, and I don't have an answer to your question, Taylor, about whether you know he prefers this style of manager or that style of manager. I think it's a fascinating concept, though, because I'm curious about how much young players, or just players, period, but I think young players more so, like even think about the manager of the destination that they're going to. The Beckham documentary is kind of still in the back of my head, and David Beckham was obviously affected when he goes to Real Madrid and Carlos Quiroz follows him, and they didn't get on particularly well at Manchester United, I'm not saying that can't have an impact, but I wonder how much young players are thinking about, you know, all the the minutia of their clubs rather than like I'm going to play for Real Madrid or I'm going to play for yeah, PSG or, or Barcelona. Whatever. I think I think the brand probably trumps any of those other things. I'm not sure it should, but I think that is that's an interesting question that I'd be curious to ask some of these young players. I would also say, Joe, on that, as a sports person, you have to have a tremendous amount of ego and self belief. Yeah. And you'd probably think Oh, it doesn't matter who the manager is. Yeah, I, right. That's Real Madrid. I'm going to go in and boss it. That's got. That's probably got to be your attitude, certainly if you're a striker, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And the other difficulty is managers are so fleeting. Like, they, they come and go so quickly. You know, Pep is one of the exceptions. There are, are, are several exceptions. But by and large, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about a club on the big thing later this week that are making some moves in that regard. So I, I think it's difficult to base all those kinds of decisions around just who's leading the team at that particular moment in time. Yeah, looking forward to that Wimbledon episode on the big thing later, Joe. Can't wait. Check. Um, or, <laughs> indeed. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for that question, indeed. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Milan. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show. Welcome back to Listen to Questions. Paul Nichols has been in touch. The front three of Pulisic, Giroud and Leal seems to be firing on all cylinders. Why do you think that Pulisic has been able to slot into this lineup and be so effective from the start? Uh, 
Graham, what do we think about this one? Obviously, Pulisic with, is it four goals from 10 appearances, I think, already this season? Got the late winner against Genoa last weekend when his uh, striking counterpart had a different role to play at the end of that game as well. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Oli Giroud now the, the AC Milan goalkeeper ahead of Mike Magnon listed on the AC Milan website as a goalkeeper. And I think they actually sold some shirts with his name on sold the back. Out. Sold out. Sold They're out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was me. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was going to say, have you got them all in the pile behind you, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got them all. Um, I think the simplistic answer is AC Milan didn't really have someone who could play on the right side of their front three, and now they do. And I said at the start of the season that I wasn't really convinced about Pulisic, Pulisic as, a, as a right winger. I think I'm having to eat humble pie so far this season because he's been very good for AC Milan. I have to say, he hasn't started every single game. There, there has been some rotation of him within the lineup, but that's that's to be expected with the options that AC Milan have. I think a slightly more nuanced answer is that they have a decent balance as a front three. So last season, 34% of AC Milan's attacks came down the right side. Um, obviously, more attacks on, on the left side with Leao and, and Teo Hernandez. This season, that, that number has risen to 39%, which is which is a pretty substantial rise. And I think that is, at least in some part, down to, down to Pulisic. Um, you, I think you still have Teo Hernandez and Leao to provide that vertical threat on, on, on the left side, which obviously Pulisic can do. I don't think we've seen him on the left for... For AC Milan, at least in a starting position, he kind of drifts at times, obviously, but we haven't seen him in that role yet. That is something that he can do. But I think Pulisic has been most effective in getting into the box to finish opportunities and then having Giroud as as a focal point helps Pulisic in, in, in those situations. And we spoke about this last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, that you can see Liao and Giroud starting to anticipate Pulisic's movement. So... I don't think, my hope was that we were going to see Dortmund Pulisic again. I, I don't think we've really seen that player where he is excellent in transition and has that explosive. There are bits of it, of course, and I remember his first goal for EC Milan was a bit like Dortmund Pulisic again, where he bursts through, dribbles past a couple of players and unleashes a, a laser into the top corner. But largely speaking, generally speaking, I, I think his quality for this AC Milan team has been getting into central areas, and that is a feature of his play we also saw at Dortmund. So it has been a good move for him so far. I still think there is room for growth and room for him to further improve. And that's the exciting thing for Pulisic in this team. I think Graham uh, covered a lot of the tactical side of things pretty well. I also enjoyed that when he said Milan didn't really have anyone who could play on the right wing, Joe just fully nodded. Bobblehead yeah. oh, nodded. Wait, wait, here, like let me one. quick add my, I, my nugget because Graham, your Please. stat was really good. And, and then Taylor, I'll turn it back to you. Rafael Leao had 16 league goals last year. None of Milan's other wingers or attacking midfielders had more than seven in all competitions. Like they were brutal. Junior Macias played a decent chunk of the season on the right wing. 31 year old Brazilian is just like not super good. So yeah, Graham, your, your opener there is straightforward, but Milan needed talent and Pulisic brings that talent. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, so uh, you all have covered that well. I would just add from like the intangibles perspective, uh, and the Beckham documentary is also still in my mind, Joe. I think like team spirit and established atmosphere is an important part of having a new player kind of gel quickly. And I have to believe, though Milan can be a turbulent club themselves, though there has been, have been questions about Stefano Pioli and is he the right manager long term or even short term, uh, he's still there. There's an identified style, atmosphere, vibe. Uh, and, and I feel like so to go into a place that is just a more steady climate, steady atmosphere, there's less turmoil. You have fewer players assembled from different managers than he had at Chelsea. It, it has to be a just sort of comforting thing, a more stable environment. And there's also a bunch of former Chelsea players there who probably know the pain 
and can pick him back up. I mean, Olivier Giroud is there. Fikayo Tamore is there. Ruben Loftus-Cheek obviously moves this summer. Uh, I forget where Bakayoko plays. I doubt he's there anymore, but he's another former Chelsea player who's been there. I just feel like there's a lot of sympathy and understanding probably there's a support group they yeah. have like a <laughs> yes, meetings exactly. for players that have gone come through come from chelsea <laughs> i just picture olivier Giroud with that in mind like uh goodwill hunting style just hugging pulisic and saying it's not your fault over and over and over again until eventually he just scores goals and then we're all fine but but that would be my guess is and i think we're seeing chelsea get more of the philosophy and identity of pochettino and i think it's why they are sort of starting to get better form starting to get some good results but I think when Pulisic was there, there wasn't really any of that. And there were people changing in the hallways. And I think with Milan, there is just a bit more stability that allows him to focus on the football and focus on the things he needs to work on as opposed to what do I need to work on this week versus next week when there's a new manager. I like the idea of a Chelsea support group for players who've left, Graham. I'm, I'm picturing like in a few years, Mudrick being in one saying, I left four years ago. They're still paying me for another four years. What do I do? This is crazy. And, uh, the, it seems, uh, Taylor, I'd say that the four USMNT superstars of Serie A have all had a pretty good season so far. Maybe Eunice Moose has had the least minutes. I'll have to look that up. But certainly the UVA players as well seem to be getting praise uh, and appropriately so. Yeah, I mean, I think Yunus Musa, even if he's had uh, fewer minutes, that he's playing in the Champions League, that he's playing in Serie A, that he seems to be a player that Piole likes, um, that that matters a lot. And I'm I'm really happy with everything we've seen from U.S. players so far. Uh, Weston McKinney is probably the one that makes me the happiest, mostly because he is the one who seemed most surplus to requirement and that he is now starting games, playing regularly, playing in different positions, not just keeping Timothy Weah out of the starting 11. They both started last weekend. Uh, I think it has been really great. Let's get more Americans in Syria. What could go wrong? Let's just flood the market and see what happens. Yeah, we had a way, uh, sort of a right wing back thing going on, didn't we, this past weekend, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Good stuff. All moving around, all very versatile. That's what we like to see. Thank you very much, Paul, for that question. Uh, Doug Soholt has been in touch. How does the playing style of the dominant team or teams in a league influence the sides below them? Do more sides set up in similar ways or try to play in a way that will frustrate the top team when they meet? A certain style is more likely to evoke copycats or counters. Uh, Interesting question, Graham, from Doug here. Uh, It made me think, first of all, of like, the Leicester title win and how their sort of counter-attacking style evolved against maybe some of the styles at the top. And then, you know, we've seen this kind of evolution and... um, teams mimicking and countering the popular style of the day. I think this is probably a case of macro versus micro in a sense. So so first of all, I really tried to support this with some sort of data, but (laughs) I struggled to find anything that was relevant. I looked at who scored formations and types of... uh, what did I look at? Like attacking situations and, and nothing, nothing really lined up. So I'm afraid this is this is mainly kind of anecdotal. Um, but on a, a micro level, opposition teams will tend to frustrate the dominant teams. As we all know, you see it with City all the time. Teams play a, a defensive block. They try to soak up possession and then hitting the break tends to be the way that if you're an opposition team, you will play against a, a dominant team, certainly Manchester City. On a macro level, though, I I do think dominant teams influence how other teams play. And once again, let's look at Manchester City. And I definitely think Pep Guardiola has changed the Premier League and how teams play in the Premier League. And of course, it's not just limited to the Premier League. I would say Pep Guardiola has kind of changed the zeitgeist or set the zeitgeist throughout European football since his, his, his Barcelona team. But everyone now in the Premier League talks about 
half spaces and inverted fullbacks. And the team that finished second last season in the Premier League is managed by a Pep Guardiola mini-me. And even Jurgen Klopp, who is one of the best managers of his generation in his own right, has tailored the style a little bit to be a little bit more possession-based and more more Pep-like. So obviously City are a bit of an exception in that not every dominant team has that level of, of, of influ- influence. But then I think of... Postcoglu Celtic in Scotland, to use another anecdotal example, that they they also change the discussion entirely here about how teams want to play. And I certainly feel like um, teams like Aberdeen or even some of the the the, the lower teams like uh, Livingston, David Martindale, Livingston manager, will often talk about copying some of the methods and ideas that Postcoglu was able to implement at Celtic. So yeah, I, I agree with the premise that that dominant teams um, do influence leagues as a whole, but that's probably a macro thing rather than... Because when Livingston played Celtic last season and Postcoglu was the manager, they still do that sitting deep thing and, and, and hitting on the counter-attack. So yeah, it's micro versus macro for me. I think I think that's spot on, Graham. You think about how a team tries to play against the elite, right? You think about a, a team towards the bottom of the Bundesliga, Bundesliga table playing against Bayern Munich, or you think about somebody trying to deal with Barcelona or Real Madrid. In, in, in most cases, they're going to set up shop. They're going to defend deeper. This isn't true 100% of the time. There are clubs that go against that grain to mirror the big teams at a macro level, and there are certainly influences that come down from these teams. But... You think about a game that's being played on a Saturday, like th- this team is going to have to sit deep to deal with Bayern Munich because what's going to happen if you open up? You open up, you create a lot of individual matchups or you leave a lot of space for some of the most technical players in the world and all of a sudden you're getting carved up. But if you defend deeper down in, in your own third or, or at least in your own half or you pick your moments to press rather than going out all out all game, like if you're deeper, suddenly you're not having so many 1v1s, you have 2v1s. Like you have two defenders in any given area and the opposition might just have one attacker out wide or might just have one number nine, and you have plenty of numbers back, plenty of bodies that you don't have a numbers disadvantage necessarily in any relevant part of the field. So that's that's the reason why you see a lot of teams defend deeper. And I think in most cases, the smaller teams in the leagues have to do that because they're going to get burned otherwise. But that's not to say that, you know, to Graham's point, that we don't see some ties here. The, the example that I thought of in thinking about times where these influences have happened is when Conte comes to the Premier League and is the manager of Chelsea. And this is less of a a tactical thing and more of a a, like a a formation thing. And I don't know exactly how relevant this is or not, but, you know, he plays a back three with Chelsea after a while. And suddenly I, I don't know how this happened. I don't even know fully why all of this happened, but almost every team it felt like was playing in a back three shape. It gave them some numbers in the back. There are some natural advantages that you get with an extra center back on the field. But that is just maybe the the most clear example I could think of of everybody catching on and saying, wow, this is going to help us improve or this is going to give us a better chance in any given game to take down some of the big dogs. Yeah, Joe, that is pretty much my only specific instance of a coach having that level of influence that Conte's 3-4-2-1 or 3-4-1-2, depending, um, like being a thing that he sort of implements midseason when other things aren't working and then it really catches fire. And by the next season, it feels like it, it is the new 4-2-3-1. There was that World Cup when every single team was playing a 4-2-3-1. I feel like the the World Cup after Conte won with Chelsea, every single international team was playing a 3-4-2-1. Because I think it does give you that defensive stability. You can make it into a back five if you need to. So I think if you don't have 
some of the talent. You have a lot of defensive cover, but it still allows you to transition to attack pretty quickly if you want to try to frustrate and then hit on the break. It allows you to have some attacking players. It allows you to have one big sort of central focal point that you can ping the ball long to, so it does allow for some long ball, some direct play. And I think when there are styles or tactical approaches that are, I wouldn't say easily emulated, but more capable of being emulated than, say, Manchester City spending or Newcastle spending or or anything like that, I think teams maybe tend to take note because otherwise it does feel like it is oftentimes teams setting up to try to just nullify and, and sort of limit certain opportunities for certain players on, on other teams. And I think you can have that reaction in that way. But Conte at Chelsea feels like one of those ones that sort of inspired other teams to play a similar way. My only other thing like, I don't really know how to explain it other than just that there does seem to have been, and maybe this is what Graham was talking about with Pep changing the Premier League, there just seems to have been a larger shift towards teams trying to press, and that's probably Jurgen Klopp as well, uh, and then get a lot of possession, create really good attacking opportunities, be attractive on the ball, not just be direct, not just sit in. And and I think about the evolution of clubs like Brighton and Villa and even Newcastle, uh, money obviously playing a part there, but... There's just so many more teams, to my mind, that try to play expansive attacking soccer. I think that probably is the influence of Pep and Klopp bringing more pressing, more possession, more creativity and approach, and more fluidity in formation. And I think we've seen that sort of uh, permeate through the Premier League as well. I think that's right, Taylor. I think I'd, I'd actually add that I think it permeates beyond the Premier League and even to lower levels mm-hmm. as well, that Pep or, or Klopp influence. I think the Conte one's a really good example, but there was, for the last 15 years, surely like the, the most dominant style which is acceptable and beautiful is you know your fullbacks flying up possession base play out of the back all these tenets that have come from sort of the city uh, and liverpool end of things and even teams in the second and third tiers or even mls teams uh, maybe one that was set up when i was part of it who was saying this is how we want to play but basically that that has like a global effect as well not just not just on a micro level as graham would say you never hear a new, a newly appointed manager sit down at a press conference mm-hmm. and say, yeah, well, we're going to sit deep, we're going to soak up pressure, we're not going to have much of the ball, not really create much, but we'll play for set people. Like, you, never, you never hear that, even though there are, there are obviously still um, teams and managers that, that, that play that way. But I absolutely agree, it, it is like not the done thing to admit that's your philosophy now, and that is, that is the, the, pep, the pep influence, I think. Yeah, I agree there. I think... A slightly different one would be the like widespread usage of pressing. That is a thing. I'm, there's always been pressing triggers and teams that press more than others, but it definitely feels like since Klopp at Dortmund and Gagan pressing, and then the uh, like the Red Bull teams all sort of utilizing it. That pressing has become much more of a way to be competitive when you don't have the money or the talent. And I mean, that's the case across other sports as well. I always think of like VCU's high press and how they got to the final four, a team that doesn't usually get to the final four. And I think pressing has become a thing where with greater technology, with greater tracking ability, you can sort of uh, have players really go at stronger opponents. And if they're able to take the game to them, be aggressive in that press, be successful in that press, it can be a great equalizer. And so I think that's the other one that has probably become much more pervasive in global soccer because you've seen it have success uh, like in World Cups to some extent, in Euros to some extent, but certainly in different leagues and in different Champions League campaigns as well. 
when I think back to the coaching that I used to get as a kid when I played for a team, now it might just be the fact that I got bad coaching, but um, maybe Ryan, as 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 a Brit, can uh, can can you know um, say he had the same experience as me. Um, but I, I never. It was always about getting back into yeah. like defensive shape, get reset back into your, your position. It yeah. was reset the shape. It was never about. There was nothing. Obviously, closing down was a, was a term that was used, but it wasn't really a big part of what you did out of out of possession. In fact, out of possession was just a complete afterthought. It was about close. It was about being back in your in your space and position. I feel like I I, I haven't. I don't have my uh, my daughter's only four years old, so I don't really know what the youth coaching is like now. Um, but I can't. I I can imagine that's changed now. Is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, I I never like in my entire history of playing club soccer uh, and a little bit in college, there was never an emphasis on here's how we win it back immediately after losing possession to Graham's point. It was almost always, how do we get back into our defensive shape so that we can nullify what they're doing and then regain possession to launch our attack. It was much more, I think controlled and much slower. And I, and I do think I'm going to guess it is very different now with teams that probably do try to press a bit more with a bit more fitness. That's really interesting. And one that I would, I, I look forward to seeing how Sophie's uh, career develops, Graham, and we can track the uh, the growth of pressing as a result. Are you gonna She's be already living? in in the Barcelona Academy in, 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 in Glasgow, yeah. <laughs> Barcelona don't know it exists in Glasgow, wow. but, one, you know. One day, Graham, get her in the Phoenix one. You know, I've heard that one's good. <laughs> That's the dream. That good. Yeah, uh, we shall see. And I hope you live vicariously through her all the way, Graham. Thank you very much, Doug, <laughs> for that question. Daniel Rosen has also been a touch. Daniel says, as an adopted fan of Leicester, I have been assured by many pundits and podcasters that the championship is a strong league. Enzo Maresca's Leicester City team have won eight out of the first nine games of the championship, se- championship-, championship season. Easy for me to say. Meanwhile, newly promoted Burnley and Sheffield United each have only one point in the Premier League. So, is the championship game getting worse and will the Premier League's new revenue sharing plan with the EFL fix this problem Graham it's no secret that there's a disparity between the Premier League and the championship I suppose Daniel suggesting that disparity is increasing here and uh Enzo Maresca is probably someone we should talk about as well quite an interesting character too Graham yeah Enzo Maresca um off the top of my head was at Manchester City right he was he He was was, a uh, a coach there yeah assistant Um, city and at West Ham Palmer I believe is the only main coaching gig he's had besides Leicester Right, so he he was someone a lot of people thought he was going to be the new Celtic manager. So I, I pulled that from my uh, subconscious. Uh, haven't really watched much of Leicester City to be to be honest. The Championship is a league that I generally don't watch a lot of, at least at this point in the season. I watch the playoffs at the end of the season when when things get interesting. But there's just yeah playoffs. Uh, there's there's. There's just too much soccer to watch. Also, kind of like MLS, there's a million teams in the championship. I think there's 24 teams in that league. So there's a lot to keep on on, on top of. So I don't know if I am the best, pers- best person to say um, necessarily whether the championship is getting worse. I-, I think we have three poor teams this season that feasibly could go straight back down but but that hasn't happened in the Premier League since 1998 so it's not it's not like there's a there's a there's a trend there last season all three promoted teams stayed up and in recent years we've had teams like Brentford and Aston Villa come up who have not just stayed up but made a real impression on the top half of the table and just to put some numbers some flesh in the bones of what you were saying about the disparity 
there, Ryan. I, I think it is fair to say that championship clubs are increasingly in a perilous financial situation. Um, I don't have numbers on this season's promoted teams because their books are still open, but the three promoted teams from last season, so that was Fulham, Bournemouth and Nottingham Forest, they lost a combined £158 million that season to get promoted. That's not even accounting for what Nottingham Forest then spent in the transfer market to stay in the Premier League last season. Kieran Maguire, who hosts a, a very good podcast called The Price of Football, mm. um, I would recommend that podcast. He's a good follow on Twitter as well. I found an article from him and he says, the operational losses for last season in the Championship averaged out at £476,000, so half a million pounds a week for every club. That's the average losses in the championship. So trying to project ahead, I expect we will see more Lutons in the coming seasons where Luton this year seem to be quite happy. Maybe I'm reading this incorrectly, but they seem to be quite happy this season taking that Premier League cash, using it to build out their infrastructure, using it to build a new stadium and a new training ground. And they'll probably go straight back down. But when they do go back down, they'll be in a much better financial situation. So in that sense, maybe the championship is getting worse and the teams that they are sending to the Premier League are are going to be poorer quality. But I don't know if I can categorically say that the teams are worse across the board. Yeah, I don't think we can say any of that based off of the first nine games of the season, right? I, I think you have to look broader. And Graham, you did a good job of looking broader. I found a number, the Athletic ran the numbers, that since 2000, of the 69 promotions that happened from the championship to the Premier League, 41 stayed up. That that shocked me. I would have thought it was far lower. That's 59%. I, I If you'd asked me to take a guess, I would have guessed certainly less than 50%. But in general, championship teams have, have had a lot of success staying up, at least in the first season. I suppose success is relative here. But Graham, your, your discussion about some of the financial situations, I think that is very real. I also want to point out, though, that... Most Premier League teams and pretty much all championship teams or maybe all championship teams, all Major League Soccer teams, NWSL, like these teams are losing money. That is not uncommon. I don't know how much the rest of those teams are losing. So, Graham, maybe for the championship, those numbers are are massively inflated and that is unsustainable. What I've read then about the revenue share that's brought up from Daniel in this question is that it sounds like we're going to have the Premier League sharing 20-ish percent of its income rather than the 15% that it's currently distributing down the English Football wow. League pyramid. Yeah, Five right. percent. Massive. But I mean, as the Premier <laughs> League continues money, to grow, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily insignificant. But Taylor, you're right. Like it's not it's not, well, you know, them splitting the wealth equally here. But I do think that is going to help the championship continue to solidify its place as a, a relatively strong league. Like the championship, when I, I look at different league rankings, pretty consistently comes in around 10th to 13th in the world. As a second division league, they are spending a lot of money still on transfers. They spend very competitively with first division leagues in many, many countries. I think the championship by and large, in terms of the spending is is fairly strong and is probably in a position to get a little bit stronger as this money trickles down. I do love a breakaway league that wanted to keep more of its revenue, talking about the importance of revenue sharing. Like, that that feels about right for the Premier League. Uh, I will say that from doing some research for a 101 episode about a year ago, uh, a number that stood out to me in 2004, so, you know, 20 years ago, times have changed, but still, which is only 12 years after the start of the Premier League, 36 of the 72 football league clubs had been declared insolvent or placed into administration or receivership. That's half of the teams. 
I would say things are, have maybe gotten better over time, but I still think when you look at that number, for example, the 20%, so around what, like, I think 500 million, or that's what it's been, around 500 million is shared every year. A lot of that seems to be in the form of parachute payments to clubs that were just in the Premier League and no longer are. And that's the thing that uh, the English Football League has tried to do away with and have it be a more balanced revenue share, because I think that does sort of benefit certain larger clubs going down into the championship theoretically then spending that money wisely coming right back up, although that is a very theoretical thing. Uh, but with all that said, I can think back to like world soccer daily. So like, like the early two thousands um, where they were talking about how are we going to start seeing the, you know, the promoted teams sent right back down every year? Is the disparity too great? I mean, this has been a talking point for decades now. And to Graham's point, it hasn't really happened since what 98. Was that what your numbers were, Graham? Yeah, 98 was the last time all three teams that came up went back down. So I think, like, this is, for me, uh, an example of things being two things. Like, I, I do think there is much greater financial disparity, and I think it probably has long-term ramifications at the same time. I don't think it necessarily means the championship is worse. I think there is still money there. I think you are still seeing good teams come out of it. Burnley, I, I think we answered that question a, a week or two ago. I think they end up coming good. And I think that they have sort of invested wisely and they're building a smart team. So I think you you can do that in the championship. You can identify a philosophy, build around that philosophy, bring in players that suit that one, and then go up and stay up. I think it requires creativity and effective problem solving and effective spending at the same time. But I don't think it automatically means that the championship is getting worse. Yeah, I, I just to go back to the, the new Premier League distribution model that's going to come in. I think that will change nothing, even Agreed. though that that money will be they'll be getting a larger chunk from the Premier League. I think one of the biggest problems for the championship is that the carrot of the Premier League is so big that so many clubs are just willing to spend whatever it takes to have a chance of promotion up to the Premier League. And so that money coming in, I don't think clubs will think, oh, thank goodness, that money's coming in. We can rebalance the books a little bit. We can be in a healthier financial position. I think they'll be looking at that money and going, great, we've got more money to spend on a new number nine to try and win us promotion to the Premier League. That is, that is how that will go. Ah, short-termism. Can't, uh, can't fault it. Very good. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for that question. We take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk MLS and we're going to talk about cliches of the punditry nature. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light as air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go again to Richard Rolson. Two questions in an episode. Absolute scenes from Richard here. With the arrival of Messi in MLS, there's been a lot of discussion by pundits and reporters that there's a good chance MLS, who've tended to be conservative in their spending rules, will make changes to their roster rules. What are realistic changes that we could see MLS making this winter? We go now to Joe Lowry. Man, who could have seen this coming? Ryan coming to me for this question. Absolute shocker. I'm chuckling there as well. Um, just for listeners who don't know, Ryan picks the questions. So, Richard, just well done. Ryan liked yeah. your questions. Yeah. It's not It's not on you. This is this was, is Ryan Bailey's pick. I was going to call Richard greedy, but then realized, yeah, it's because I picked the yeah. questions and he was can, in too. Can, yeah. can I ask a question at that point? Ryan, did you know that you'd put two Richard Rolson questions in or did you just realize it when you read the name out again? That's why he was shocked. He wasn't, he wasn't pretending. He was genuinely surprised. Yes. Boom. There Joe, it is. Outstanding. Excellent, Outstanding. excellent segue. I, I love this question from Richard because I think it is the biggest opportunity that Major League Soccer has had in a long time. It's, it's basically right now in this moment. The offseason is going to be massive. Messi is only going to be here once and you're only going to have this opportunity to capitalize on this once because he's only going to be here once. Like this is the moment for Major League Soccer to try and meaningfully push the league forward in a way that they have not done ever. Like to take a jump that they've never taken before. That being said, I have a hard time answering this question in the way that I'd like to just because we have so little clarity and MLS has resisted change for so long it is massively unclear to me what, if any, changes we could see. Like, like I can hype, I can come up with all sorts of hypotheticals here and come up with a wish list. And I, I do have one major thing that I think would be interesting that I stole from Paul and Sam. Uh, but like, it is it is impossible for me, or I think really anybody who's not a part of the product strategy committee or like deeply, deeply inside Major League Soccer to really know what realistic changes there are. Taylor, I, I know yeah. you want to grab something. Pro- product well, I, strategy I, I, committee. It's a lot of the head honchos, Ryan, who make decisions, basically, inside oh, of Major League Soccer. Don't like it. Go on, Taylor. <laughs> uh, Joe, I, I want to hear that idea. I have a few random ones myself. Uh, but I wanted to like drill down deeper on one aspect of the question. Uh, Richard says, there's been a lot of discussion by pundits and reporters that there's a good chance MLS uh, will make changes to its roster rules. Have you seen any sort of concrete like information that that's a thing that they have prioritized like i looked i didn't see much in the way of like don garber saying we are going to address this so it feels to me graham i i it sounds like you've got something there but it felt to me more like that's a thing that with Messi arriving 
this is kind of the opportunity. And so there's been a lot of people talking about it. There hasn't really been anything that confirms that that's a thing that will actually be happening. There was an athletic story a couple months ago, not long after Messi joins. I'm, I'm sure it was a, a, a Paul story. And Tom, I think, um, too. Yeah. Tom, yeah, Paul and Tom. But um, not on that Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not Sam. Um, he, the, the story was basically that the MLS owners were having discussions and, and Mass was leading those discussions and applying pressure on MLS to allow them to spend more money. That, that was the story at the time. Miami yeah. think you should be able to spend more money? Isn't that what? crazy? I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, the devil yeah, so you say. Miami are certainly driving this train and, and Jorge Mass has come out and, and said, like basically has had quotes in favor of MLS changing some things. I believe Alejandro Bedoya and Jim Curtin both have as well, but they they certainly don't get to make any decisions here. I think uh, there have been a couple of other owners who have come out publicly and said, yeah, you know, maybe it's it's time to try and move some things forward here. I think there are figures within the league that do want to move forward, but that has been true for a while. Like you think about the clubs in Major League Soccer that are really pushing. You think about Atlanta United, Toronto FC, LAFC, now Inter-Miami, there's, there's probably a few others that belong in that top tier. Like those owners have wanted this regardless of whether Messi's here or not. Other owners around the league, think about the Colorado Rapids, the San Jose Earthquakes, who can run through a much longer list of those clubs, are relatively content with their asset appreciating over time. And MLS clubs, all you have to do is look at the expansion fees and, and some of the, the prices as these clubs have moved. Like These owners are going to make money, and their investment will come good if and when they decide to sell. So others are much more comfortable just waiting. So yeah, I don't think it's fair to characterize uh, really there being a good chance of this happening, like I said in, in sort of in my open, it's just so unclear. All that being said, yeah, all that all that being said, like the biggest thing that I think about in terms of fixing and simplifying and opening up opportunities within Major League Soccer for teams to spend is to just like actually open it up, like get rid of some of these buckets, yet let them spend a little more, and maybe that looks like a salary cap increase but the biggest thing is is just let them spend that money with a lot more efficiency. Like let them spend more, but let them mostly spend more efficiently. I think that is the the biggest key. Teams have to spend so much money or or the rosters are skewed so heavily towards the top end, towards the top six players or whatever if you're using all of your your different mechanisms to their their fullest potential. Like why not fold allocation money in? And this is the the suggestion that Paul and Sam had in an article years ago when Sam was still writing for the Athletic. Why not eliminate allocation money and fold that amount into the salary budget? Like teams get X amount of, of targeted allocation money, which can be used to buy down a player's cap hit. So if a player's making a lot of money, MLS has a salary cap. So it's difficult for a lot of players in your roster Doesn't to make know. a lot of money. So if you buy them down with allocation money, their number counts as a lower figure against the salary cap. I know that sounds weird. I actually, I hope I explained that well. I think I did. I think that makes sense. Maybe I'd got to hit the backwards 15 second button, but just get rid of that money. And, and make it actual real money. Like, bake that into the salary cap, and then you let teams spend a little more evenly across the squad. Yeah, I mean, Joe, you used two... The thing I was joking about there, you used two phrases, and I think they're both important. You used salary cap, and then you also used salary budget. And I, I think that was a thing that blew my mind when I first kind of learned that, like, MLS doesn't really have a hard salary cap because you have GAM and TAM, you have different financial levers in there and mechanisms, not even including the DP aspect of things. So you don't really have a cap because some teams can trade GAM or can trade TAM and then you have more money to play with. I think the idea, to your point, of just getting rid of some of that stuff and making it 
a harder salary budget or salary cap minimum salary cap cap basically i think would be a good way towards just incentivizing more spending i think it all relates to some clubs don't want to spend more as you said joe it it feels like some people are like buying a home to do no renovations to not really live in it but with the expectation that the housing market will continue to appreciate and 20 years from now we'll sell it for more money i don't know that that doesn't really like make me fall in love with the sport in this country so i i think i would love to see more spending but i think you have to find a way to make it basically so that the clubs that don't want to spend are sort of forced into it or are incentivized to do so and one way that i could see that happening albeit maybe unrealistically is to expand the number of dp spots to maybe five but make it that if you want to use spots four and five you have to pay a fee to do so see now i'm creating more buckets but whatever uh, it's basically like a luxury tax and then your that money gets pooled and redistributed and it basically incentivizes teams that aren't spending money to spend other people's money but at the very least then they're spending and i think more money creates more quality sad as that may be so i think anything that allows teams and also incentivizes teams to spend more money is a step in the right direction yeah i would agree with that and and to zoom out for just one second i think it is easy and in so many ways justified to either tune out it's completely justified to tune out it's easy and justified even to roll your eyes and think like all these roster rules are so stupid like other leagues don't have this stuff this doesn't make sense it is hindering the game it's clunky to talk about it's difficult to explain it's difficult to understand I think all that is is 100% fair. What I will say is I truly believe that parity is a useful tool that Major League Soccer has. I think about as an American sports fan, which is was really what I am first and foremost. Soccer came later for me in my life. As an American sports fan, I care that the same team is not going to win the title every year. And I know there is some parity and there's parity in different ways in top European leagues. You get parity at the bottom in Europe, which is awesome. Like having relegation and promotion is I think the single best way of doing sports, but that's not going to happen in major league soccer, at least not in anytime soon, maybe not in any of our lifetimes, who knows? But I think there is real value in having parity, having some sense of unpredictability. And in order to get parity, you have a cap. You, you have some soft thing, some soft limits, some foam padding around you somewhere so that you're not having one team spending four times the amount of team three places below them in the standing. So I think having some restriction, some balance is good. I think most people around Major League Soccer, and I think even most sports fans would probably agree with that idea. The challenge is MLS is still restrictive right now with their rules that they have parity, but they don't have enough quality. And I think there's a middle ground somewhere where you can have quality and you can entice a a soccer fan from Scotland or whatever, right? To come in and actually want to watch your league for non-messy reasons. And you can also have parity to capture some actual American sports fans. I just hope that this offseason, I don't know if there's a good chance of it. I don't know if it's realistic. I don't know what exactly the changes are. Although, Taylor, I like your suggestions. I think the one from Paul and Sam that I stole here works as well. I think there are things you can do. And I hope Major League Soccer takes advantage of this moment to loosen some of these things without getting rid of them because they're they're not actually going to get rid of all this stuff. Joe, w- one question like for you, and and you may not have an answer, but maybe listeners will. I, I look forward to the Discord conversation. Is this sort of like teams don't really like there are certain teams that don't want to spend uh, and are waiting for that valuation to increase or, or sort of like that they're in on the ground floor, even if it costs them three hundred fifty million to then theoretically be able to sell down the road like. Does that exist in other American sports to your mind? Because I know there are teams that operate on smaller budgets. I know there are teams that don't have as big a market share or can't spend as much and have to find other ways to be creative. 
the Oakland A's would come to mind. But I don't really think of any teams off the top of my head that just like generally do not spend money or don't sort of go out there and try to make splashes. I can think of poorly run teams in different leagues. I will say I'm not as up on NHL these days, so maybe there's one in there. But like NFL teams, I think of as being inefficient because of the way they recruit or uh, who they sign or the coaches they have. But I struggle to think of teams that are just sort of not spending that much because it doesn't really matter to them it's about the valuation can you think of any or is that not really a thing no i I think it is a thing these are finite spots these other leagues in in the united states aren't expanding at at the rates or or just aren't expanding at all compared to soccer teams professional soccer teams in the u.s so you know there's 30 baseball teams the oakland a's payroll i looked it up as you're, you're talking there the a's are the first team that came to mind for me is like a third of the Mets and, and the way, way, way less. It's like a sixth of, of the top spenders in, in Major League Baseball. I, I think from an ownership perspective, there are legitimately these teams that are just biding time. And it's a sort of fun plaything on the side. It's not something they're putting a lot of investment into. And when the right moment comes down the road, they will sell and they'll make a lot of money in the process. I, I'm not an expert in any of these other sports. Like I, I try to be and try to be aware of what's happening in the soccer space. But I, I think that's fairly common in these fixed leagues. See, I think, but I think of the A's as being, they don't have a huge like market share. They're not getting a ton of TV money coming in. So their and their owner isn't as wealthy. I mean, a lot of this, I'm not going to lie, is based on Moneyball. Uh, so who knows how accurate that actually is. Uh, but I don't think of them as just like not spending because they don't really want to because they don't really need to. That, that That's the thing that seems to be a uniquely MLS thing. Maybe that's just how I'm perceiving Major League Soccer and maybe I'm being overly harsh on certain teams. But that that's sort of where that difference lies for me. Uh, but again, could be wrong on that one. Richard, thank you very much indeed for that question. One final one for this episode. We go to Ben Sundstrom, who says, What is everyone's most and least favorite punditry cliche? Have any of you noticed phrases that uh, another one of you says a lot without realizing it? For example, says Ben, my dad says, at any rate, and my mum says, anyhow, all the time, and they have no conscious recollection of ever saying them. Taylor, I think the one I probably say the most and I catch other people saying is, to be fair. To be fair, he's done well there. To be fair, to be fair, <laughs> I feel like I say it a lot, as if as yeah. if to imply I'm not being fair at all other instances in my life. I think it's a way to to basically say you're playing devil's advocate in certain occasions. I think like if you're trying to say a thing that you might not necessarily believe, but you recognize that there's an argument there. I think to be fair is useful. Uh, I think having yeah, said that is another very good one. There's the whole Kirby enthusiasm bit about how you can use having said that to negate everything you just said uh, as a way <laughs> to like kind of let yourself off the hook a little bit. I think I was joking earlier in the week about curious to see seems to be the most common expression that I don't really remember being around as much but you will hear that on every sports podcast interesting to see curious to see on my list yeah yeah Mm. there's 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 quite a bit of that one uh but i don't really have any like strong beef with that i think the obvious cliches would be uh african power african players pace and power uh you know their physical specimens uh it's a lot of like you know asian teams are very disciplined and uh uh, I think the league had the joke that like Hideki Matsui is inscrutable. Like th- there's and you get uh, Latin players are firecrackers and spark plugs like the racially coded language. 
is has fall, fallen off a little bit, but is still there uh, somewhat often. So that's definitely one that I do not enjoy. Uh, my favorite one that I always enjoy seeing used. I love the subreddit uh, for absolute units. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> he's an absolute unit. They're an absolute unit. Uh, that one always makes me very very happy. I contemplated putting in a should have done better joke here, but I feel like that that's kind of well worn <laughs> to territory. Well. Uh, so Top I'll leave that to Graham list. and Joe. Top that's my favorite list. <laughs> should have guessed that. Yeah. Uh, Joe, another one I like, um, or no, actually I dislike it, is the overuse and the misuse of literally. He's literally hit that like a rock. Oh, yeah. He's literally got nowhere to go there. No, he literally does. He's, <laughs> that's not what it means. Get him, Ryan. Get him. Yeah, I, I like that we're all venting these things out now. I, I feel like, uh, I don't know if Ben was leading us in with at any rate or any how as being cliches. I don't even think literally really falls into this bucket, but as long as we're talking about things that we we dislike about speech that's somehow tied to soccer, I think it's it's fine. Um, my list of ones I hate, and I I don't have a one that I love off the top of my head when I was thinking about this question, but the ones that I hate, <clears throat> here we go. Uh, I have four. <laughs> Should have done better. Um, that's irritating to me. Uh, two nil is the most dangerous scoreline. No, it's not. It's one nil. One nil is way more dangerous to defend than two nil. That makes zero sense. Uh, they just wanted it more. That one maybe is accurate, like sometimes, but it seems so lazy and dismissive to me of all the other factors that go into the game. And then the last one for me, and this is not necessarily a specific phrase, but it's talking about managers like chess players. Like they're the ones that control every aspect of the game and, and it's all on them whether they win or lose. I'm guilty of this from time to time, and managers are massive figures in terms of, of some of these top teams in the world, but managers only do so much. Like, they're not touching the ball outside of a bounce pass now and then from Greg Baralta, right? So they're important figures, but they're not as important when the game is kicked off as the 11 players that they've got out on the field. So that is a, a small sample of the cliches that irk me. I'll add another one to the list. I always hated the cliche about away goals counting double because it's just wholly untrue. That's not how it worked at all. Away goals were a tiebreaker. They never counted double. But now, obviously, that's not a thing. But uh, pundits and commentators used to say that quite Grant, often, that away goals would count double. Didn't they actually count double? Literally. Literally, they counted double because they doubled and it was worth two. So that was why they no, were the tiebreaker. That made remember, them the tiebreaker, I, didn't it? Counting double. Well, it's a tiebreaker. If the match finish, finishes level, you then give the win to whichever team has the most away goals. Because their away goal counted double. No! <laughs> it doesn't count <laughs> double. Sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Fair enough. All right. J- Joe, I- I'm concerned about yours because um, the managers can literally make players want it more. So okay. how do you feel about that? Lit- I mean... Weirdly, I feel like in that case, it's probably true. Like, I think a manager could motivate a player. But Ryan, I like, let's just smush all the ones that we all hate into one really long sentence. Like the, what is it? The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Let's get all the letters, all the cliches in there that we despise and really just be irritated forever. Can I put forward one that I like? I don't know if this is a cliche per se, but when we're talking about something that pundits will say, Ali McCoy saying, it really, really is, or he really, really does get it straight in my veins every single time. He says it every few minutes as well, which should somehow, that should get grating, but somehow it, it, it doesn't. I really like that that figure of speech that he uses all the time. What about to the question of, are there any that jump out from the four of us? Uh, are, there, are there any things that you all think of as one another uh, says or that I say? Somewhat consistently. There's two that come to mind for me that I, I tend to find myself relying on, on that I don't always they? love. I can't think. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous to say them because I now know every time I say them from this point on, I will be like, oh, there it is. Uh, but sometimes if I am 
unsure how to end a question, it will be how say you or it will be where are you on that? Uh, th- those are the two that I think I will end up with. Of like, no, there's been a lot of criticism of Erling Holland for this and this. Graham, where are you on that? Uh, th- that's one that I think is an easy way to ask a question when you're not sure what the specific question is. I mean, there's also some of your phrases which have become canon. Uh, things can be two things. I'm so hunky. You know, all those ones that you have used over the years on the stupid podcast. Stupid is a stupid does. I'm big yeah. on that one, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I'm so hunky. <laughs> that was one of my favourite bits from the, the Beckham documentary was the newsreader introducing Beckham as the LA Galaxy player going, he's an England captain, his wife is a Spice Girl, and he's kind of a hunk. <laughs> That's my favorite, one of my favourite yeah. bits from that documentary. While we're on that does one. Does anyone say hunkster anymore in 2023? You also, with David Beckham, you don't need to add kind of to the equation. Like, that, that was it, one thing I had in my notes that I didn't uh, bring up when we talked about that that series, which I really love that show, by the way. It's just like I, I found myself multiple times being like, he is a very handsome man. Like, let, let's 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 not get ourselves here. So he's not even kind of a hunk. He is just pure hunk. And on that note, should we wrap up the, uh, the podcast for today? Ben, thank you very much for that question. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you'd like to ask more. And remember, Patreon.com slash TotalSoccerShow if you'd like to support us and we'll give you bonus content in return and access to our Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out. They've all got their cliches. They're talking about them after this episode. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much. Indeedy duty. Thank you, my friend. I did have one thing that I hear Joe say all the time, which is Brendan Aronson sucks. It feels kind of harsh that that's Joe's cli- like uh, trademark expression but there oh, it is you got me you got me Joe Larry what's I, am wearing, you? I am wearing this shirt what's <laughs> you? well played well played Ryan thank you very much Joe and Graham thank you very much indeed thank you very much Ryan Bailey listener thank you the mostest we'll be back on the feed very shortly but for now bye Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.